All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, my podcast partner and executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, happy day to you, sir. Yeah, TGIF. <laughs> so, Chris, you're you're a uh, you're an accomplished writer. I want to run this uh, this past you. I'm trying to come up with a different uh, image for uh, or a different descriptor for COVID nineteen. We've been calling it an accelerant for so long, something that sort of sped up and revealed all these different deficiencies and cracks within the healthcare system. Yeah. Weighing this this comparison, this term, I'm, I'm starting to think of it as more like a black light that's showing us all the stuff we don't want to see. Too graphic? Uh, um... <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> we'll put that back on the shelf for now. I didn't know there was a body in the corner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll put that one on the on the on the clipboard for now and uh, maybe come yeah. back to it later. Are you watching horror movies? Um, <laughs> it just reveals all the things we don't want to see, but I admit yeah. I'm having you know, trouble. It's- it's really, it is true. It's like a test case. It's like, um, it's almost like the, uh, you got let me think about that. But you're right. It's got to be like, it's like everything, everything was just seemed to be moving along. Okay. And then you get something like this and you just get a hotel room looks clean. And then you're like, Oh man, I could, I should sleep on top of the covers. This is, <laughs> I'm going to try to slip that one in an article on mass device next time. We'll see if you catch yeah, cool. it. All right, so before we get into our great interviews of this week, we have a, a couple of interesting ones. I got to speak with Barth Sundaram. He's the president and COO of Vizient, which is an organization that uh, basically works with most of the hospitals out there to help them secure medical supplies and, uh, and medical devices. And we had a, an interesting conversation about something we reported on this week on Mass Device about their efforts to increase our country's PPE production. So it was a great, great conversation about PPE, which is very important. But we also talked a bit about medtech. And without revealing too much, we looked forward to the future. Invisient has the ability to quite effectively project where we're going with uh, with medtech and with healthcare spending. And uh, Barth gives us a little bit of a, a sense of when things might get back to, quotation fingers, normal. Yeah, when is it going to be back to normal? When? Oh, you can't tell me yet. We have- You'll you'll have to listen to the podcast like everybody else, Chris. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I also got to talk to uh, an interesting man, Adam Sachs, the CEO of Vicarious Surgical, which is uh, a company that's developing a robotic surgical system that also incorporates VR. Cool. And uh, I've been playing with my son's VR headset recently, and uh, <laughs> it's really cool. And it's uh, if they could make this work, uh, a VR surgical combo. Uh, I know we've had also. Also, VR, uh, employee VR for training, but uh, to, to include it in a surgical system, that would be very cool as That'd well. That would be great. Yeah, it's, it's always nice for surgeons to not have to glance over somewhere while they're, while they're working on you. So that's... Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and he had noted... I had been playing a game with my in my son's headset, and I was getting nauseous because it was involved... It was actually a uh, recreated Doom... I don't know if you ever played Doom. Oh, my goodness. Wow. On VR. On VR. <laughs> and it was wow. fun. And it was fun, but the running around in your mind through your eyes, but not on your feet, uh, was really disorienting and actually made me queasy. But that's why surgery is so great because surgeons never move. Yeah, so you yeah. can have VR 
and you're not going to get nauseous in an unfortunate place like an operating room. Wow, that's that's very cool. Well, hopefully, uh, yeah, I, hopefully we, we see that advance a lot more. And uh, who knows, all these uh, all these kids are, you know, the, the, your son could be training to be a future surgeon. It'd be great. I know. I that's a good point. I don't want him to hear the podcast. He may be making that argument. Before we get into these interviews, we, of course, want to find out what's happened this week. What news is big on the Mass Device pages? So we'll go through our countdown. We'll hit numbers four and five. We'll slip into our first interview with Barth Sanaram, and then we'll follow up with the rest later. So what has been the fifth largest newsmaker on the Mass Device site this week? Chris Newmarker. Yeah. Well, you know, just today, the, uh, you know, we had news that the uh, Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, they've, uh, you know, handed down, you know, it looks like it's an important uh, decision related to uh, medical device preemption. And for those who don't know that legalese, it's, it's basically that, you know, um, if FDA approves a device, then, you know, that device has protection from, from lawsuits at the state level. The uh, device in question was, in, in this lawsuit, was one from, uh, you know, Beck and Dixonson's, uh, you know, BARD subsidiary. BARD had argued that, well, this thing only was, you know, cleared, it wasn't approved, but it had been reclassified by FDA, and there are all kinds of new guidelines and controls around the reclassification of these types of devices. And the uh, the appeals court said, yeah, that yeah, they aren't specific enough to, uh, you know, to say that this, this gets preempted just because there's some guidances and, and special controls because it got the overall devices got reclassified so uh, it looks like it's a uh, it's a win for the lawsuit lawyers you know you could uh it, you know it's the uh, the preemption to, you know like argument has uh, has appears to have some more limits now after this uh, appeals court decision terrific now that that certainly will generate a lot of interest okay and let's go to number four this is uh, we're going to hear from a, a familiar name in this one yes we've got uh you know we, we've got another update on uh theranos founder elizabeth holmes uh, trial it's now set to start in March. So March 2021, jury selection starts on March 9th. So, you know, save the date. That's when it's probably the biggest uh, criminal trial we've ever had in the medical device industry. I even have a question on LinkedIn and asking, Connect, is there anything that's ever been bigger than this? You know, feel free to answer if I'm forgetting something. But I, it, it certainly seems to have been like just this, this huge story just, just speaks to a lot of things around, you know, Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and innovation and you know when we you know sometimes perhaps get too excited about innovation and don't question enough you know the uh, the technology behind it yeah it should be a yeah this should be quite quite the trial to watch and here's here's to hoping we uh, we have a vaccine by then and uh, things are a little quieter and this hopefully is the biggest news we've got going on i feel like we should come up with a code word for that where instead of saying we hope there's a vaccine by then we'll just say something like pumpernickel so we all just know like that's what we, <laughs> that's what we mean because that that so much is bearing on that are you going to uh try to increase the mass device budget and send a, a reporter out there to cover this hey you know if we could fly them out there <laughs> we can all say flying out and you know they have an in-person trial that'd be uh maybe we uh yeah we could get somebody to go to norcal to hang around san jose and cover the trial that would be fun we'll, we'll see here's the here's the hoping for pumpernickel that's right. Edit those stories while eating my pumpernickel toast. There we <laughs> I think we're starting a couple of crazies with black light and now pumpernickel. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This podcast is in a death spiral. So uh, before yeah, we yeah. hit the ground, <laughs> let's uh, let's hear from Bart Sandaram, the president and COO of Vizian. Well, Bart Sandaram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. 
So we had uh, reported some news this week on the mass device. Uh, Vizient announced that it had entered into an agreement with Encompass Group for uh, for some uh, personal protective equipment. And I want to explore that deal. But before we get into that, I'd love our Device Talk listeners to understand a bit more. If they already don't know what Vizient is and uh, and what are the services you provide to uh, to the healthcare system? Yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, you know, Vizient's the largest performance improvement company in, in the country focused on healthcare. We serve about uh, over 50% of the acute care hospitals in the country, over two-thirds of the large integrated delivery networks, and over 95% of the academic medical centers in the nation, in addition to wow. 20, over 20% of the standalone ambulatory market. Uh, and we serve them across really you know, four key areas. One, pharmacy. We help them with purchasing, uh, sp- uh, pharmacy costs, utilization, engaging their clinical staff. We help them in supply chain. Uh, where we do the same in you know, med device and med surge and capital purchase services, help them with data around those areas, as well as in contracting and driving pr- and price savings and aggregating their purchasing power. Uh, we have a whole set of offerings in quality and operations, including a deep set of analytics and, and services to engage physicians and clinicians in driving change management using data, data and informatics. And lastly, uh, we help them in strategy to you know, help them drive growth within their markets. Ultimately, our mission is to enable them to accelerate performance by uh, aligning their cost, quality, and uh, market activities. So you have a very unique perspective then on where we are today with uh, the healthcare system and, and how it's uh, how it's adapting to to COVID. What is uh, what are you seeing? You're you're in touch with so many systems. You work with so many systems. How is uh, the system faring overall? Yeah, you know, it's certainly you know certainly because of our supply reach and how we service what we call members. We have been you know intimately involved in that. I would tell you, you know, we serve we we probably aggregate over a hundred billion dollars of spend on behalf of our members. So we've got pretty good visibility into uh, what's happening in, in, in the marketplace across these different uh, product categories, including PPE. When COVID first started accelerating back in, in the middle of February, what we did is we immediately formed a, a war room, a 70-person war room within Vizient to help our members adjudicate issues and identify sources of supply. And what we quickly found is this wasn't just a supply chain problem in terms of you know, access and visibility and allocation. There certainly was that issue, but it was fundamentally also a supply problem. There was a fundamental uh, imbalance between supply and demand. Not only did you have demand that was 15, 20 times, if not higher than typical, but you also had constraints in supply because, you know, 80% of that PPE product wasn't as manufactured in Asia and China in particular, where product was being, where the lines were down because of the pandemic and product was being kept in country. So you had this, you know, confluence of events that created really substantial issues. And in some of the, you know, it's probably not as frenetic as it was back in March and April and into May, but it's still a significant issue for our member hospitals. And in particular, in categories like gowns and gloves and masks, it continues to be an issue. Not only do you have our members trying to uh, service patients that have the COVID or, or, or PUI with COVID, but, you know, in addition, you know, uh, more, they need more protection for their healthcare delivery frontline that is taking care of patients over in general, just to be protected against the disease. So you're seeing, you're seeing this demand and, and continue to be issues with supply. 
did you see similar issues, supply issues, or any challenges whatsoever outside of PPE with uh, with medical devices, be they be used for surgery or, or for other purposes, or is the primary uh, disruption been uh, on the PPE front? Well, the primary disruption has been on the PPE front and in the in pharmacy, some critical pharmaceuticals. Although we didn't get to as acute of levels, you know, some of those drugs that are used for um, you know vent intubated patients, there were certainly. Uh, concerns about shortage situations there, although they didn't get to the acuity that you had in PPE. Um, on the on the med device front, that's been uh, a less of an issue, and part of that is because some of those procedures have been frankly delayed. But you're starting you're starting to see that bolus of activity start to come back up, but not to a level that it hasn't been manageable in terms of access to product, at least on a, on a global basis. On the PPE front, what is being done differently going forward? And, and perhaps this might be an opportunity to talk about a bit about your, your agreement with Encompass, which you wrote about, as I mentioned, on, on Mass Device this week. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Tom, it's not just a supply chain problem. And we've got to work on allocation methodologies. We've got to work on visibility. And we're putting tools and technologies in place to do that. But it was, you know, fundamentally a supply problem, a supply mismatch problem, and it was all it was fundamentally a supply redundancy problem. So you had not only not enough supply being produced, but yet supply being produced in a really concentrated region, such that when any issue happened in that region, that the ramifications were pretty severe as you, you know, followed that down through the supply chain. And so what we've been doing, and it fits into the encompass question you've been asked, you asked about, is we've been looking at new and creative strategies by which to stand up new sources of supply, and in particular, North American and U.S.-based manufacturing. So we've put you know, tens of millions of dollars of our capital at risk to encourage new co- companies to get into the PPE space with U.S.-based and North American manufacturing. So we've given them the working capital to uh, get into the mass business, get into the PPE, get into the gowns business, uh, get into the face shield business. And we then, uh, in addition to providing them that working capital, we've also provided them with the commitment and purchase so that they know once they get those lines stood up that they have you know a steady stream of purchases that would justify them making those investments. So you, you mentioned Encompass, which is one that we just announced. Uh, we've done work with Standard Textile. We've done work with cable companies that we've helped get in this space, uniform companies that we've helped them get in this space. You know, the advantage to the healthcare delivery for our healthcare delivery members is not only do we have this additional redundancy in manufacturing, but as people step into these agreements, including the ones you've talked, including the Encompass Agreement, folks are, these manufacturers are committing to holding U.S.-based inventory on behalf of our members as well. That's dedicated to our membership so that, you know, if, you know, they need, there's a surge, if there's an issue in manufacturing, we've got dedicated inventory that we can allocate to our members. And it's not something new, you know, that we've started to do that last year with in pharmacy. So we, uh, we have a private label program called Nova Plus and we created the Nova Plus Enhanced Supply Program where those manufacturers not only participate in our private label, but they hold inventory on behalf of our members. And it was really beneficial to our members through the crisis. So I mentioned vent- in, ventilator-associated drugs. There were shortage situations. Our members were insulated by that because we were able to provide, as an example, 650,000 vials of propofol above and beyond their traditional historic allocation because these manufacturers were holding inventory on their behalf. And now we're extending that into the PPE space. So what does this program look like? What does it create? Is it, is it creating the capacity to 
to build more PPE or are you actually going to be stockpiling PPE and, and have that set aside somewhere for your members? It's both. It's both creating the, the capacity to build PPE in a more redundant way in the supply chain. But then two, to your point, it also creates stockpiling or in, in, inventory that, we, that these suppliers will hold on behalf of our members. And we will ensure that they're you know, cycled so that they're current and usable product. And then uh, we'll also uh, ensure that, that al- that's allocated appropriately. Uh, and there's visibility around that allocation should a shortage situation occur. And are we talking about just standard gowns and masks, or are we talking more more the N95 masks, more 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 uh, I guess robust uh, protective systems? You mentioned face shields and such. Yeah, we're talking to all the gamut of uh, the full gamut of PPE. So you, you know the ones we've announced so far have been gowns, both you know reusable and disposable, different levels. We are will be doing this in mass, including this, the N95 mask. But you know, our, our view is to continue to expand this into different categories of critical product and PPE, gloves, etc. And in addition, uh, in pharmacy too. So I mentioned last year we signed an agreement that would do that for 11 uh, critical drugs. Uh, just the last few weeks, we signed a new agreement. With, we announced a new agreement with Pfizer where they're holding inventory for additional six essential drugs. And you know, and it's about it's about it's about not just bringing new product uh, or bringing new, new lines of manufacturing capacity, but it's also to your point that holding of the inventory on behalf of our members. It has it has the effect of not just providing them uh, safety if there's a shortage situation, but it's you know, hundreds of millions of inventory holding costs that these manufacturers are bearing on behalf of our members. In your, in your ideal situation, going forward, what should the percentage of materials coming from the U.S. be considered, since it seems as if the fact that so much of our supply came from outside the U.S. before was, if not the entire problem, was at least part of the problem? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if we have a specific target per se. We are aggressively moving to more. And I think, I think, it's, I think it's both. I think it's U.S.-based manufacturing, but it's also redundancy in manufacturing. So what we're looking for is to build more North American capacity, but also ensure that the capacity we build also has redundancy in other locations so that if there's ever a fault in the supply chain, you, you, have a, you can, you can uh, have fallback into uh, another location. So for example, you know, if there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico, you know, you're not fully dependent on product coming there. You have access to other locations of supply. Understood. And, and just again, out, looking outside of, of the PPA and in, in at other medical devices, how, how involved are you with those in, in the purchase of those? And uh, in, in, do you see those channels changing at all going forward? On the medical device space. So we, you know, a critical part of how we serve our members is in the medical device space. And I can go into how we do that. We do that through a combination, you know, contracts, technologies, services, et cetera, and engaging their clinicians and physicians around the usage of these uh, uh, medical supplies. As it relates to, you know, these, these inventory issues that I talked about and these stockpiling issues, I think, like I mentioned, it's probably less acute on, at least from our experience, on the med device space in particular. Having said that, you know, we're thinking about that category differently and, you know, think of helping our, you know, health systems think about cost of device along with quality and outcomes that they can get as a result so they can look at total cost of ownership, impact on length of stay, impact on return to work and things like that. And so that's probably where we're more focused around applying our informatics and data to help our members make you know, holistic buying decisions around med device. I think these issues around inventory uh, and stockpiling are probably a little bit less acute in, this, in, that, in that area of spend. 
Sure, but do you see any change in uh, perhaps some vendor consolidation going forward with the purchase supplies? Do you see an effort by hospitals who are grappling with their financial uh, shortfalls from from all this pushing down on pricing? Is there a move toward that? I uh, just guess I'm trying to understand for the medical device companies and the, and the suppliers that that we speak to, if we can, if they can perhaps anticipate any differences going forward and and how their own products might be purchased. Yeah, and I think I think most of your listeners would would say that that probably happened pre-COVID too. <laughs> and what it, what what COVID's happening, what COVID's doing is accelerating the cost pressure. Yep. And and so so there will be you know pressure on pricing, and you know what you know so it, what it's also from a from a health system perspective, it's also creating more pressure to engage with the physicians and the clinicians to driving standardization, standardization, looking at utilization and care variation. But fun, but also, you know, with that comes price, right? Price of device. Uh, and I think there was a focus on that before. There will continue to be an even more acute focus on it going forward. But I think, you know, looking at it holistically and looking at, you know, when you look at the cost of usage, looking at, you know, quality outcomes, et cetera, and then engaging your physicians and clinicians in that decision. And a lot of the work that we've done pre-COVID and actually a lot of the work that we're engaged on to do during and post-COVID is how do we engage, help our members engage their physicians and clinicians in some of those buying decisions to drive not just best price on the front end, but standardization, utilization, reduction, uh, care variation reduction. Great. And just final question, do you have, you must have a model to how you expect their healthcare system to be pressured by COVID going forward in coming months. Do you have a sense? No, if you talk to the medical device companies, no one obviously is willing to commit and project on sales and such, but do you have an understanding of, of where this may track or, or is this just like tracking hurricanes during hurricane season and we may have different waves coming in one after the other? Yeah, no, no, we do. Um, you know, I mentioned, you mentioned what Vizian does and we have these four areas, pharmacy, supply chain, quality, and operations and strategy and where we help members on that strategy domain, we help them with growth. And a lot of the work we do there is forecasting. And so we help them forecast as an example, patient volumes by service line at the national, regional and local level. And we, you know, we, we have PhDs and research scientists that are looking at the data to help uh, our members. And actually a number of you, probably your uh, listeners probably subscribe to these tools to help them forecast what volumes they can expect for different procedures, different service lines, et cetera. So we have a view, and I'll give you a couple examples of, of that. One, you know, as it relates to COVID in particular, one of, mm-hmm. the, uh, one of the things that our team worked on was the, util- the projected the utilization of ICU beds and actually inpatient beds during the COVID crisis, and they were remarkably accurate. So as an example, in New York, they predicted at the at the peak in March and April. They predicted the peak would be 10,351 from an average daily census. The actual was 10,100. In uh, Chicago, they predicted the peak ICU to be 410. The actual was 420. So they were they were remarkably accurate. And I would just highlight on that piece it was because they appropriately factored in hospitalization wow. rates uh, based on the number of people that were not just tested for COVID, but the number of people that probably actually had COVID, which was a larger number than what was actually tested for COVID. And that's why you saw a lot of the models way overshoot it. And then the second is they properly properly accounted for uh, social distancing and the impact that that would have. And so my point is on that one is that, you know, we're pretty good about forecasting. What they've done is now they've done taken their forecast and said, okay, what does that mean for the uh, health system 
and volumes, uh, you know, particularly from an inpatient perspective, but both, they did both inpatient and outpatient uh, because of COVID. And we don't project volumes coming back to where they were at till the back half of 21, early part of 22. So that gives you a sense of, uh, you know, at least our expectation of it. You know, it's probably come back faster than we would have expected, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, but I think the, the impact of the economy, the impact of the care shift, the impact of you know, telehealth suggests to us that, that you know, it's going to be a while before it gets back to the volumes pre-COVID. And then even then, from an inpatient perspective, you have kind of this steady decline over time. Well, Boss Honduran, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, now I'm back here with Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences, and uh, we're going to learn what our third most biggest newsmaker of the week is. What is it, Chris? So we got news in the diabetes space. Uh, Medtronic is saying it's going to acquire insulin pen maker companion medical for an undisclosed amount. And uh, yeah, this is just an exa- another example of how Med- Medtronic is you know, expanding, trying to get even more diabetes capabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're definitely really trying to be the dominant player in, uh, in diabetes treatment. And, uh, you know, so this is just more more news on that front. And so, you know, you got Medtronic, you got Abbott, you got some, you know, really cool, you know, smaller companies like, uh, I mean, smaller, they still, you know, can like have billions of dollars, but, you know, Dexcom, the tandems, you know, the insulates. But, yeah. Um, but and yeah. Medtronic had so, said uh, a couple of months ago during their first quarterly call or the first quarterly call of the year that uh, they'd be uh, looking to acquire. So it looks like they're, they're backing that up. Yeah. They're still shopping. Yeah, good news. All right. What is uh, number two? Number two surprised me as did uh, number one. So let's start with number two. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is really just like what's getting the uh, the most pages on, on mass device. So this is our this is our readers, you know, saying that this was interesting for them. But, you know, I think it's just another example of, uh, yeah, we've got M&A going up, people doing acquisitions, even these just crazy Tough, interesting times. I mean, Cooper Vision, um, you know, says that it acquired a, uh, you know, a, a customized uh, contact lens manufacturer and distributor called, uh, you know, GP Specialists. And I think kind of the, the big news here for, for Cooper Vision is that they're saying this is, uh, you know, expanding its, you know, especially eye business and, you know, really giving it some leadership when it comes to you know, addressing uh, myopia. So, so some, some news on the, uh, you know, vision device front here. Great. Now let's uh, hold off on number one. As I said, I found it surprising, but it, it really was good news. But before we uh, we learn about that, let's hear f- some more good news from Adam Sachs. Adam is the CEO of Vicarious Surgical. It's a, a Boston area company. Yay. And uh, let's hear from Adam. Well, Adam Sachs, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Excited to be here. So one of the more, I think, interesting elements of, of MedTech is the, the adoption, the quick adoption, I think, of, of surgical, robotic surgery, rather, I should say. And it's a, an area that's been dominated by or is becoming dominated by larger players. So it's interesting to see a startup move into this space. And I know you have more elements than just the robotics. So tell us a little bit about Vicarious Surgical and uh, maybe we can get into its origins. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, we, we started this company uh, about six years ago. Uh, 
You're, you're right. Surgical robotics is, it's one of the most interesting fields, obviously, I think that given that I've made it my career. But uh, overall, I, I might disagree on the, the rapid adoption. I mean, there's a ton of interest and uh, there's been a, a huge push in this space over the last five years or so. But despite the fact that, you know, surgical robots have been widely available for the past 20 years, uh, arguably, you know, have been available with, with, uh, with ESOP before that. And despite all of that, you know, we're still looking at, at single digit percent uh, penetration in the best markets or, or sorry, in the, in the U S market overall, uh, and less than that worldwide. And there's, you know, there's, it's not at all to bash the incumbents or, or anything that exists today. I mean, there's some pretty incredible technology, but, you know, the, the world has changed so much in the last 20, 25 years since the invention of the first generation of surgical robotics. And we really have the ability to now leverage uh, all of these new these new technologies uh, and paradigm shifts across both robotics, some of which are actually our own invention, and across user interfaces that will allow us to create something that is much lower cost, much easier to use. And, and frankly, um, you know, it's better for the surgeon, the patient, and the hospital. That's a great point. I mean, perhaps I was listening to too many quarterly calls last week and hearing all the, the rosy reports right. from, from the big players. And you're right. No, they're, they're, we clearly need to do more. And uh, that's why I wanted to talk to you today. You have a unique approach or an unique additional element to your system. Tell us a bit about, uh, about your technology. Yeah, so the the real core of the technology itself is actually the robotics. So the robotic system that we've designed is uh, essentially a miniaturized system, and it has nine degrees of freedom per arm. Uh, that's that's you know two more than anybody else, and. It's not a coincidence. It's that we've fully and faithfully replicated the motion of the human body, of the surgeon's body. So our whole system goes in through one incision into the abdominal cavity. Uh, that that single incision is really important to us. Not not as much because we, you know, there've been a lot of single incision solutions in the past. Uh, I think the more important thing is is around freeing the surgeon from that incision site. So if you put everything in through one incision, you're no longer defining your kinematics, your robotic motion, by pivoting around the abdominal incision site. You're able to generate any motion that you want. And we've decided to mimic the motion of the, the surgeon's body for the most natural, easiest experience for the surgeon. So all nine degrees of freedom happen inside the human arm. It's miniature human proportion arms, and then a camera that actually is capable of moving anywhere inside the abdomen. Uh, and then all of this is controlled, linked with, with this paradigm shift in human-machine interaction that's driven by virtual reality. So the surgeon puts on a VR headset, and then the user interface is immersive and makes the surgeon feel not like they're controlling a giant machine, but like they've been beamed inside of the patient. So how does the VR function work? I mean, I've used the Oculus we were talking before the, the, the call that I, I was using my son's toy and, uh, and you know, I can see this video game in front of me, but what is a surgeon using your system seeing? Are they seeing the actual images from the camera or some VR replication of that? They're seeing live camera images um, with spacing between the two cameras that is uh, much more natural than anything that exists. It's about 12, uh, 12 to 14 millimeters instead of about four millimeters. So it provides deep 
you know, really immersive 3D view. But then the coolest part is that the camera uh, pans, tilts, and yaws. It has three degrees of freedom, all about the surgeon's uh, uh, head motion. Wow. So it, it naturally moves in every degree of freedom uh, wherever the surgeon looks. So where physically on this planet, where can the surgeon be and where can the patient be? How far apart are they from each other? It's a really good question. Before I answer that, can I kind of dive into more philosophical thoughts about, about remote surgery? Absolutely. A lot of people have talked for a long time about remote surgery, and it's never taken off. And I think there's a few reasons for that. First is, you know, today's systems cost a million dollars to build, and they sell them for $2 million. I mean, uh, our, our systems uh, are about an order of magnitude lower cost to build, uh, and we can offer them for much lower cost. And that's incredibly important because, you know, a hospital that can afford a a first generation surgical robot likely has the surgeons to operate it as well. Uh, So to have remote surgery really have a meaningful impact in patient care, we need to start offering much lower cost surgical systems. Um, That that being said, I, I also think that remote surgery isn't really what uh, telemedicine should be about, at least within the field of surgery. It should be about remote training. So, you know, if, if we have one surgeon here in, in Boston uh, at, at Mass General Hospital operate on a, on a patient in a developing country, I mean, that helps one patient. But if they teach a surgeon in a developing country, do live proctoring like they would fly to, to do typically, mm. Uh, in the OR during a live case can take over for the tricky parts and and help teach them giving another level of confidence, then we really are able to to actually improve and elevate surgeon skill sets all across the world. And and frankly, all, all with our technology. So what then is the, is the, the, the primary function or the need for the VR interface? Is it, is it for the remote opportunities that you laid out really well, or, or are there reasons that a surgeon would want to operate in a patient in the same building using this interface rather than just get in there themselves and, and see what's going on? It's, uh, you know, our main focus is not even the remote procedures. We, we've built out, actually, the core of our system is built out over, over the network. So we, we are able to and, and have done uh, re- remote demo procedures uh, already. But the, you know, the, the main advantages of VR and of the single incision and, and the fact that it's, it's human-like motion, it all comes down to ease of use and orientation for the surgeon, allowing the surgeon to really feel like they've been you know, beamed inside of the patient and instead of having to set up a machine, having to learn and, and practice for 100 procedures to get good at how to define the motion by where they put the incision sites, being able to to, to learn how to manipulate the camera using clutch pedals. All of this takes time, takes effort, and, and takes mental energy from the surgeon, even, even once they're trained during the procedure. So it's really about natural immersive interfaces uh, for, for surgeons for, for the same reason that um, your, uh, your son uses a VR headset to play video games. Do you see an opportunity? F- what, what is the primary function or, or the reason for purchase going to be? Will it be performing surgery? Do you see training being the biggest selling point? Why, why would a hospital look toward a vicarious surgery? And, and after that, I, I do want to get into specifics a little bit about your origins and just where you are with the development of the system. 
you know, it's absolutely a, a primarily a, a, a surgical robot for operating on patients. Uh, you know, I, I think, though, that all of these elements really come together for why a hospital would be excited, right? You know, we have the ability to a- actually Im- improve access and reduce cost of care for the hospital. We have the ability to, you know, uh, unlock new procedures and and make for a much better, much more capable experience for the surgeon. And we have the ability to to remotely train and provide assistance. And I I think in today's increasingly complex healthcare world with more and more players, especially in surgical robotics, we're going to have to start tackling all of these. It can't just be more capable. It can't just be more fun. It actually has to also be lower cost. Is there an opportunity presented by the pandemic and just, is there, would there ever be an opportunity for a patient to be in the OR by themselves with others just working with VR to eliminate that, that risk of, of germ transference? Yeah, this is something that we've, uh, we've definitely bounced around a lot. I think, uh, I think the pandemic related opportunities for us come more into, honestly, uh, it's going to be a less interesting answer than, than you were probably hoping for here, but the, the economics of capital equipment purchasing, sure. you know, ha- having an order of magnitude, lower cost device and remote training. And the fact that right now, you know, uh, mo- most surgeons are actually banned from leaving the state right now oh, interesting. Uh, by their hospitals. Um, or they're, they're not allowed to, you know, a lot of surgeons are not allowed to return to, to the hospital within two weeks of having been out of the state. So it's, um, you know, I, I think the opportunities here are, are much more in the economics and the training than anything else. I do think long-term, uh, there are going to be some really interesting opportunities around how surgery is managed, how patients are managed, uh, where they're managed, whether it's in the ASC setting with robotics, uh, which would be very interesting, or in the main hospital setting. But I, I do think that we are at least multiple years away from a patient being in a hospital, uh, sorry, in an operating room without any, any staff. Okay. Let me, let me focus a little more then on, on yesterday and then today. So yesterday, uh, as in your history, what is the, uh, what is the origin of vicarious? Yeah. So it came out of uh, a conversation with Dr. Dr. Green and, and me and Sammy, uh, around the, around the frustrations of surgeons today around essentially the idea that, you know, I think the way, the way, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to, call him Barry, because it's very hard for me to call him Dr. Green, honestly. But the way Barry uh, brought it, the, the, this question to me was like, how is it possible that today's robotics actually haven't solved a lot of the problems of laparoscopy? They haven't actually in, improved access that much. And, you know, what, what, what can we do to fix that? And it was sort of his push and his inspiration combined with our robotic design and vision for the, the human machine interface. Uh, we, we actually, you know, we, it's, it's interesting to, uh, people talk about pivots all the time. I mean, this has been like the same road since we started it in 2014, building out the robot. The vision has mm-hmm. been almost exactly the same. And it's just been iteration and developing a completely new robotic technology. And, and we're, we're getting pretty close. Uh, we've, you know, we've been incredibly fortunate to be funded by uh, some of the, the best names in tech. Bill Gates and, and Vinod Kosla, among others. I didn't even I didn't hit a, even I didn't even hit upon the financing. Yes, you're right. Tell us a little bit about the recent round that you uh, closed on. Yeah, so we we raised uh, uh, 
thirteen million dollar uh, round um, brings our total funding to forty five million. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this, you know, we're incredibly excited about E15 significantly because they, uh, they they have a really deep network in hospitals and in in medical devices. Uh, we're actually, you know, they, they don't have that many direct investments. Um, and uh, if, if you look at their direct portfolio, I mean, it's pretty fantastic. It includes SpaceX and uh, and you know, uh, or Oris, which was just acquired by J and J. Sure. That's that's that is a great uh, family to be part of, and finally, where are you with uh, with your your system uh, in clinical testing and in commercial availability? Yeah, so we're you know preclinical still. Uh, we are we're getting very close. I you know I, I don't want to commit to uh, uh, an exact timeline here, unsurprisingly, but I, I will say, uh, especially with some of the recent announcements that we've we've heard uh, on timelines of some of our competitors, we'll be right in step with them. What does your regulatory path look like going forward? How many clinical trials do you anticipate having to do? We are still working through that with the FDA. Um, it, it's you know really going to depend on their feedback and, and our recommendations uh, for you know what will produce confidence that our device is safe. Are you uh, pursuing PMA or five ten K? Today we're pursuing five ten K. Five ten K. Yeah, and I, I mean we we have heard some of the the recent announcements there that I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, right. But uh, overall, we're we're pretty confident that we can pursue the five ten k path, and and it comes down to to focus more than anything else, right? And making sure that you know our our device is uh, is within what's necessary to pursue that path. Excellent. And just final question: You've mentioned price a few times. Do you have an idea of what you'll be charging for this, or are you just do you just have you just mapped it out and have sort of a ballpark percentage of what it might be of other systems? Yeah, t today, I mean, our, our focus is, uh, I think it's too early to set price. We really need to like get into the clinic, test price, understand the, you know, costs and benefits of various pricing strategies. Uh, that being said, you know, our mission is to expand healthcare access. And, you know, our, our internal goal ha has always been a 10x reduction in cost to produce the technology, because we believe that is the kind of drastic reduction that is is going to be necessary to get ubiquity of surgical robotics. Outstanding. Well, it's a great story. I love the fact that you're uh, in Boston. Yay, Boston. Yeah, you should come visit at some point. Uh, when, when I'm able to, I'd love to come down. You're not too far away. Sounds great. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking some time and joining us on the podcast. Thank you as well. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, it's great to hear from Adam Sachs, and it's always great to hear from a podcast partner, Chris Newmarker of Mass Device. Chris, what is the number one newsmaker this week on our Mass Device site? You know, the number one news is that Neuroleaf received an FDA breakthrough device designation for uh, a uh, non-invasive neuromodulation device called the Relivion DP system. And the systems for uh, treating uh, major depression. So, I mean, this is a headset-like device. You place it on the head, and it, you know, and it uses, you know, neurostem to kind of stimulate the uh, the release of neurotransmitters in the uh, in the brainstem, and you know, help help you, you know, mod modulate your brain networks, you know, with control of, you know, mood. So, you know, this could be, uh, you know, something. Um, I mean, the, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, depression is, you know, a major, a, a major problem. A lot of people wrestle with it. I, I'm sure a lot more, a lot of people are even wrestling it, with it even more right now. Um, you know, this could be, uh, you know, this could be something that could, uh, 
you know, hopefully help people out, you know? And so, and I think that's why this, you know, got so much attention on, on mass device. Cause it's, it's, uh, I, I hate to use the word cool device too much, but yeah, cool. Something that's a headset that you can put on your head and, you know, help, you know, relieve your depression with it. That's a pretty cool device. Absolutely. And, and much needed and, uh, just kind of scratching the surface there, but, uh, great. That's a great, great number one. And, uh, that's the end of, of this podcast. So Chris Newmarker, where can folks find you on social media? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find me on Twitter at Newmarker, just like a, a new marker. Excellent. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. And uh, if you share this podcast, and we hope you do, please uh, tag Chris and or myself. We'd love to be uh, part of that conversation. And uh, also, if you would uh, help us out by subscribing to the podcast, if you do that, you get these podcasts sent immediately to you when it comes out. Like as I've said in the past, we have uh, hundreds of people who listen to this uh, the first day or two days when it comes out. So if you're waiting until three, four, five days to listen, uh, we're grateful that you do, but you don't need to wait so long. Just subscribe and we'll, you'll get it immediately sent to your phone. So uh, please do subscribe. Please do share the podcast and uh, please tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. 